Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Norman Horn with me today to talk about our latest book, Faith Seeking Freedom. Now, I'm sure if you've listened to any of the last couple episodes, or if you've been a listener for a while, you have heard that LCI has a new book called Faith Seeking Freedom. Probably a hundred times. Probably a hundred times. <laughs> and you are going to hear about it in 2021 because this is the book to get. This is the book to buy for other people. This is the book to read over and over again because it's really good. And we're not just saying that because we're half of the author team. But yeah. it is our goal at the Libertarian Christian Institute to equip Christians to make the Christian case for a free society. And this is one of our predominant ways of doing so, especially right now. And we have this nice, awesome yellow book. I wish I could hold it up and show you, but this is a podcast. So it's a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Not a video show. Yeah. Yet. Not a video show yet. Please <laughs> send us your donations and to make that happen. And maybe, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Uh, so actually what's going to happen here is throughout the year, we are going to do every couple episodes, we are going to have a sort of author's commentary slash here's why we wrote this chapter for the director's book. cut. Yeah, it's something <laughs> like that. So we want to have a little bit of fun with it. We want you to sort of get a taste of what we were thinking when we wrote it. And we're also going to talk about the content. So this isn't a like only a behind the scenes kind of thing. I mean, we're going to talk about some of the content in this episode. So you could share it with your friends and maybe they'll be like, oh yeah, maybe I should buy that book. And hopefully it'll give you kind of an insight into, you know, kind of even just the process that we went through writing the book itself. I mean, yeah. that's, it's kind of interesting the way that this has evolved over the course of multiple years at this point. So, you know, even though it primarily came forward in 2020, you know, thanks COVID, on some level, <laughs> but it, it's a, you know, it's something that we've had in mind. If you've been around us for a while, like you probably would have heard me on, on a couple of webinars, at least say like, this is a book that I've been wanting to write. And goodness, I've been talking about this for well yeah. over three years at this point. Yeah. We've had a tremendous time sort of compiling it, getting it together, planning it. It's been sort of the brainchild for like, yeah, three, three or so years or if not longer. And this is also, because it's not going to only be Norman and me talking about this, for future episodes, it might be uh, Dick Clark and me, Carrie Baldwin and me, or maybe Carrie some and Norman. Some permutation of the four of us. Some permutation of the four of us, yeah. And part of that is because it's going to be the closest thing to hearing who wrote this chapter or who wrote this question. We've, we've gotten people who say, hey, I want to know who wrote question, you know, number six or whatever, or who wrote the one chapter. And with the exception of the abortion chapter, which Carrie wrote all the questions, we have a mixture of people who wrote these. So we're not going to give a breakdown of every question or whatever. But the idea here is that if you listen to us talk about chapter one, which is what today's episode is going to be about, that's because Norman and I wrote most of them or whatever. So it's not an exact science. It yeah. doesn't mean that uh, Carrie and Dick did not have a hand in chapter one, which they did. But we sort of divvied it up in that way so that you can kind of hear our voices because, you know, we're the ones who wrote it. So that's kind of where we're going with that. Yeah, and, and it's also worth noting there too that, you know, even though we say like, oh, well, you know, Norman wrote question six, which I think is, I think that is indeed the case. That doesn't mean as well, like Doug, like you said, that, 
you know, everybody kind of had input into everything. And in fact, that's part of the whole, the whole mm-hmm. process is that even though we wrote it, you know, in a sense separately, we did it all collaboratively. There were lots of conversations that were had, you know, throughout the process regarding, well, hey, where's this going? Or how do I fit this in here? Or, you know, what do I need to do to make sure that this flows one to the next thing? And also, how do we harmonize the voices together? Mm. You know, it's an, it was an interesting experience just as the four of us to go through the process of writing all this and kind of catching on to, you know, some of each some of each other's, I'm not going to call them writing eccentricities per se. It's more just like, we all have a little bit of our own style, but then we all melded together pretty well to create something that as a whole, it sounds like it does speak as one voice mm-hmm. in that case. Yeah. And, I, and that was a real big... It was a real. It was a really important thing to me, starting off on the the effort itself, that we did accomplish that, and I think we did a pretty yeah. good job overall. What I found as almost ast- I don't know if astonishing is probably not too strong <laughs> of a word. Honestly, is that it wasn't that difficult to blend them. I mean, there were obviously some things that we had to to remedy and fix and tweak and so forth. But like, I, I remember, that, yeah. yeah. Well, I remember reading through it after everybody had done their first draft, and I think, oh. Well, this, this is working flows, pretty well. This works pretty well. Flows pretty well. Yeah. Doesn't sound like you know jumping from Carrie to me. Carrie and I write very differently, typically. You know, jumping from Carrie to me to Dick to Norman because there are a few places where it kind of jumps that way. It's like, oh, oh, well, that that actually worked better than I thought. Um, so, <laughs> or better than better than you might assume. So, anyway, that that was kind of cool. Another thing would be like we've improved each other's writings. We might say, hey, why don't you add this paragraph? And we kind of like propose the paragraph, and Carrie's like or whoever it might be, it's like, oh yeah, that sounds good. <laughs> so there's like, you know, one one or two sentences of someone else's answer was written by another person, and, and it's just like, well, yeah, you wrote it better than I could, so let's just, we both wrote the question, you know, kind of, kind of mentality. It was a great thing to work with everybody on it, that's for sure. Yeah. So we hope you enjoy hearing us discuss the chapter. So we're not going to talk about the introduction too much, So we're going to jump right into chapter one, which is why should I care about politics? Now, Doug, this is this is kind of an interesting point, because you might kind of wonder why start the book in this way at all. And actually, I think that's it's an interesting kind of a discussion from your end, because it was sort of you that set up these first 10 questions in the format that they ended up in. So I think it's worth mentioning, like, why did you choose to even sort of formulate the chapter this way? Well, because, <laughs> well, actually, we should point out, like, what is the structure of this chapter? So yeah. it's called, Why Should I Care About Politics? But it ends up flowing pretty distinctly straight into the biblical argument against yeah. statism. Yeah, I mean, we were going to sort of start the book with, well, what does the Bible have to say about politics? Mm-hmm. In fact, that might have been the that was the original running, title. I think that might have been the original title of chapter yeah. one. And I'm like, well, we can talk about these issues, but here's why I really think, and I say this sort of tongue-in-cheek, but honestly, it's probably got more truth in it than I care to admit. I'm at a stage in life with kids and with growing a business, running LCI, doing all the kinds of things that I love to do in life, where I don't have time to sort of soak up everything that I want to the way I did 15 to 20 years ago when I was first in the liberty movement. And I wanted, I just wanted to know, like, well, what does the Bible say about this or that or, or, or politics in general? 
And I would just want to jump into the question. And I yeah. think to some extent, there was a little bit of me that's like, okay, this is a great start. This is definitely the content the book needs to start with. But we have to sort of lead into it. Because here's the thing for me in my life right now. I have to ask myself, why should I care about this topic? You know, someone might give me a book or recommend a book. And I'll be like, okay, like, why should I care about this? Or, or they'll propose something to me. They'll say, well, you should follow this person on Twitter. You should follow this issue that's going around on Facebook. You should, whatever it is. I always ask myself, why should I care? Because it may not be part of what I'm doing right now, right? Yep. And so that for the last probably four to five years has been sort of what I've sort of gone with with respect to like, where do I choose to invest my time? And what we don't want to do is waste people's time talking about something they don't want to talk about. At the same time, we want them to look at our book and say, oh, two questions? Oh, yeah, you've convinced me that, that I should probably think about this a little bit more. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like, it's almost a little bit of a sales model on some level. And, and that sounds a little, maybe a little crass, but let's explain why. Yeah. You know, if, if you have something that you are convinced and know, you understand how, much, how valuable it is to someone else, then it almost behooves you to sell them on it. Mm-hmm. And that that's important to realize. So if I, if we just just called it, you know, the biblical case against the state yeah. as chapter one, well, that's fine as a descriptor, but this personalizes it. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where that kind of punchiness is sort of immediately drawing you in. Yeah, was the point, and I love it. Well, there's another element to this, and it stems from something I hear a lot of Christians say either because they have a particular thing to say about politics or they have a sort of a disinterest. So there's the disinterest part, which we just kind of spoke to, but there's also the kind of thing that people will say, which is, well, Jesus wasn't political. Yeah. Or they'll say the Bible or the kingdom of God is not meant to be about politics or the Bible, you know, doesn't talk about politics very much. Now, most of the time people will say Jesus was apolitical. Jesus didn't care about politics and so forth. And that really irritates me because nothing could be further from the truth. Rome really, really wouldn't care if there wasn't some sort of political threat by the new people of God, you know, that was spreading throughout the Roman Empire. That's a neat, it's a good point to make because it's also, it kind of belies an extra piece of the puzzle that's behind the scenes there is that when somebody says that, it's one of those, it's kind of like a half truth and a half lie. Mm -hmm. Okay, you know, Jesus was not political in the sense that he has a particular vested interest in who is the, you know, city council member of St. Louis, mm -hmm. Missouri or something like not not per se, but because he's not really concerned about the electoral mechanics of it all. What Jesus is concerned about, however, is the nature of power and in that sense he is intrinsically political. And so that's that's I think the kind of the truth behind yeah. it. Yeah, the fuller truth, if you will. Well, and a lot of people will talk about the gospel and they'll bring up the gospel and they'll say, you know, the real the church's real mission is about is about the gospel. And it's like and okay, I want to say, yes. well, <laughs> yes, that's true. So then and? what do we mean by what do we mean by the gospel? And I, yeah. I'll 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 say that my influences theologically and norms yours are going to be a little bit different, but I think some of ours overlap. And this is not true of all the authors, by the way, but in terms of answering the question, why did we start the book this way? This is sort of why. Some of my theological influences are people like N.T. Wright, Kurt Willems, who we just heard in the previous episode of the one we're doing right now. 
and also Scott McKnight. Uh, I'm drawing a blank on a few others. But <laughs> the idea here is that the gospel itself has not only political implications, but the message itself sounded political to the first century church, to the first century hearers of that message. And there was a distinction between the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of God. Yeah. And there are a number of, you know, elements that we can take there. But, you know, when I tell people that it's very clear that the gospel is a political thing, here's what I typically will say. And I don't quite think I say this in the book. So this is a little bit of bonus, you know, stuff that probably wouldn't really doesn't need to be made in the book, but kind of fun to talk about is if you think about God sort of on a really high level, God's plan of redemption and when is God going to come to earth as a human and rescue the world. And God chose wisely in God's, you know, infinite wisdom to come at what we see as what what we now call the first century. Okay. I realize that that's because, yeah. you know, ex post facto. <laughs> yes, right. Thank you. I couldn't think of the Latin for that. But anyway. Oh, we were uh, talking about Roman times. So you know. Yes, right. <laughs> so why now? Like why Jesus in the what would be later become the first century? Well, what's going on? There's Rome and there's this gospel going around, this good news of Caesar going around. And the message is that we can have peace. We can be made whole as a community. We can have wholeness. We can have the Pax Romana if we just bow to Caesar and Caesar will conquer all these other lands. And you have Jesus coming in and doing pretty much the entire opposite, subverting and co-opting the language of Caesar is Lord. This isn't just a matter of saying, oh, Jesus is Lord. And because Jesus is Lord, Caesar isn't. It's also Caesar claims to be Lord and no, that's wrong. That's not as clever as we say, Jesus is Lord, Caesar's not. It doesn't work on a bumper sticker as well. <laughs> but um, anyway, if you think about God's infinite wisdom in choosing when to come and be incarnate, God in flesh, to rescue humanity, then what we call the first century has its own historical context, its own narrative, its own setting in which God is doing something completely different. And... I would say we need to take that infinite wisdom seriously. And I think the book of Revelation actually gives us a glimpse into the sort of cosmic battle that sort of takes place. And I'm not going to get into Revelation because that's not my forte right now. <laughs> but we can see that empire as sort of epitomized in the Roman Empire is the theme throughout scripture. And it's a theme since the scriptural canon has closed is that empire is always wanting to subvert what the gospel is trying to do. And as libertarians, we we view the gospel as a nonviolent, you know, part part of that message is that that it is a nonviolent mission to change people and in succession change culture and change others and change society. And the state wants to do that through force. So that's a succinct way of putting it, I think, in some ways. And so when we start to talk about politics from a broader perspective, not just like party politics or electoral politics, we see that the whole kingdom of God gospel message is very indeed political. Well, what does that mean for Christians? Because then we have to think, well, goodness, now, well, I guess the Bible also says things about government. Does that mean that there's a difference between government and state? You know, what happens if governments get too powerful? So those are some of the questions we address in chapter one because those are sort of the implications to what all, all that I just said. 
Yeah, Doug, this is the crux of the book in many respects here, is that if, if we get this part right from the outset, then a lot of what follows will make sense in kind of the, the full, broad Christian context. And to me, that's like, that's exciting. In fact, much of my own work has been kind of in this area because I think it's really crucial and foundational to getting the rest of this right from a Christian point of view. And, uh, you know, when you mentioned, you know, it is kind of cool to, to point out, I think, the different influences that each of us have had, us authors, that is, have had across our lives and that have led us to these moments. And, you know, I think you're very much Anabaptist roots, as you've described it in the past, and my own background being in kind of the Churches of Christ. Dick's uh, influences are very, he's been in a lot of evangelical churches and whatnot, Baptist in general. And then Carrie comes from a more Reformed background. So it is kind of neat that with all of this, we're all converging on this sort of similar understanding of how the gospel plays into the way we think about public life. And that should be an encouragement. And it also should not be a surprise to anyone because if all of our foundations are ultimately the same, we expect that by seeking after the truth in this way that we will end up in, you know, kind of the same location, if you will. And true, yeah, you know, this is a still a minority position, if you will, amongst the broader church at large today. But I think what's also kind of important to realize is that this is not the minority position across time. And that also should, you know, be heartening to us. And, and uh, I'm, I'm kind of, a, you know, maybe giving a bit of a meta message behind everything, but I think it's at least notable to realize that, yeah. that we're not trying to reinvent the wheel here when it comes to understanding the Bible and the state. Right. We're not trying to invent new theology. We're not innovators here in this regard. We're more, it actually is more kind of a, dare we say, I say this very, very carefully, okay? But kind of in a, in a manner of speaking in a prophetic way, and not in the sense that we're trying to tell the future, and by the way, if we're not right in 10 years, come and stone us, but rather the <laughs> prophet is, is meant to be a truth teller. Like the prophet calls even the church, or in the case of the Old Testament, the Israelites, to repentance and to hearken back to the voice of God. Yeah. And so I think that that's why this chapter is kind of the, is the way it is, is that it's, it's the foundation that gets us, you know, down the line. Yeah. Uh, that sets up everything that's about to happen throughout the rest of the book, which includes elements of history, elements of economics, of ethics, and all of these things all put together. You know, Norm, if I didn't know better, I would not notice that you're sort of bringing up the themes of the introduction. No kidding. Huh. It's <laughs> almost like that was planned. Yeah. Oh, it's like we have an outline in front of us that we're going through. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> and actually, you can get the introduction as a free chapter on libertarianchristians.com, which I Check subsequently titled. Because, and here's a little behind the scenes. I wrote the introduction and Norman made it publishable. Because <laughs> I, I, it was, okay, it was one of those like passionate writing, like I'm at my keyboard writing things and telling like, okay, this is what needs to be said. This is what has to be said in this introduction. Blah, 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 blah. Okay, Norm, what do you think? You know, and then he red pens the whole thing and it makes it better. No, it's not that. <laughs> there were more revisions in the introduction yeah, there than like were, anything. There probably there? were. <laughs> but it was so important to get right and I knew you knew that for me and I, it was at the end, you know, introductions are always written at the end, I think, at the end of like the whole process. Yeah. And so there was a little bit of like, 
but I just want to say it this way. And you're like, yeah, but you got to say it this way. And so there was a lot of back and forth and we were under pressure for a number of other reasons. But the subsequent title that I published as a blog post was like recovering the lost art of thinking about politics or something, something along that, yep. along those lines. Which is so much of a theme of the yeah. entirety yeah. of LCI and LCC in the well, back I before think it that. Would, Norm, you're probably yeah. the better person to share more about a few specific streams of theology because you're right. We are not innovators. I mean, on the one hand, all theology stated in new situations. You know, we're in the 21st century. We're in Western Christianity. I mean, we're all Western Christian influenced. So the way in which we speak theology is going to sound different from 100, 200, 300 years ago in different parts of the world. So obviously we're not making up new theology in the sense that like, you know, Christians should be weary of what we have to say, but we are articulating it in a way that makes sense to modern day, well, what we would call our contemporaries. But we stand in a theological stream or multiple streams, some of which were just mentioned. What were some of your influences? Because I think what's interesting in me learning about your influences, you know, in the last couple of years has been, oh, wow, those people are saying things are very close to what we were saying. And they were, they're not like some far afield, you know, stream of theology either. Yeah. Gee, there's, there's so many things you could kind of go at in that direction there. I think one piece I want to, I'm going to just seize upon very briefly though, is, is kind of, you know, when you're doing theology, there's some interesting classical definitions of theology, and depending on who you talk to, there's one that you may have heard called essentially thinking God's thoughts after him. That's, you know, indicative of why we're not innovating here. We're not doing anything but thinking God's thoughts after him. Mm-hmm. And on some level, you could say all of reality is kind of like that, but we're going to specifically tailor that into the sort of understanding of theology itself. And the other definition of theology, which actually outright inspires the title of the book is theology is faith seeking understanding. And in fact, that's who knows we've, I totally forgot that even thought to think about maybe we should explain the, why did we title the book this way? (laughs) Uh, But faith seeking understanding as the, one of the quintessential definitions of what is theology. That's important to, to realize. It's like, so we start off with faith because we trust in a person. We trust in the person of God and in what he has communicated to us. And what we are seeking to do is understand the person and understand his message. And then, if anything, after that, be mindful of the context in which we are in and how do we bring it to bear in that context. So all that kind of functions together as part of the inspiration of the book. Now, influence-wise, for me at least, there's a host of influences that really span literally from the first century to the 20th century. Like I could literally go through almost every era of Christendom and mention specific people of the era that have influenced the way that I think about things. The early church fathers, there's many of them. But in particular, I think it's notable that the more I learned about our history, our, the church's history, uh, realizing the import of nonviolence from the early Christians. We learn about that sometimes in school, if you're, you know, in a Christian school or whatnot, but we don't really seize upon it as being, you know, truly influential upon us. These are figures that we observe from far, but they don't matter now. And I'll tell you why I phrase it that way. And I mean this in, in all respect, even to my own educational upbringing, uh, you know, because I was homeschooled through high school, well, from sixth grade onwards. 
And, uh, you know, it, it was interesting. And I, I've told my, my mom and dad this before, and they thought it was interesting as well, you know, to consider that, and this, this is somewhat an aside, by the way, but I, I think it's still important. It's, it's, it's interesting to consider that often in our American context of doing schooling, that we'll take two or three semesters of American history as part of our curriculum going through like high school or whatnot. And we don't spend even a month on church history. But which is more important to us? Well, based on our actions, it appears to be American history. But what our faith should tell us is that perhaps we should care much more about the history of the church, which is the lasting institution, what will be enduring across the ages, and not, you know, the American government or something to that effect, or American politics, American status, whatever, you know. So I, I, it's the, you know, somewhat of an aside, but uh, I think it's related here in as much as I think that the more you learn about church history, the more that you realize the depths through which we have fallen as a society. Because even though the church has not been perfect and it is screwed up a lot over the eons, God has preserved his remnant and we have a responsibility and really, we have a responsibility to understand it. And if we care about doing theology at all, then we have to understand that our history plays into that. If only because we should recognize that even our own personal history influences the way that we think about God. Yeah. And if that's the case, how much more as well does the history of the world around us influence the way in which people think about theology over time? So influence-wise, I mean, it, it's, it's varied. It's, uh, it goes from the early Christians to even looking at the way Augustine described the state to looking at the way many reformers thought about the state to looking at the, uh, the interim of uh, the, kind of the discovery of America and up to the 19th century or the 18th century and the theologians up to there. And then especially in the Churches of Christ, where in the early 19th century, where they were really founded as a denomination. And we find the churches of Christ being a very peculiar people in the way that they observed power and the state and whatnot and pacifism and nonviolence and all of that to, you know, looking at what happened in the 20th century and the rise of a very small group of people called libertarians that included a lot of Christians at first and then somehow, you know, the, the name libertarian, some uh, began to not take as much import from or significance from a Christian point of view for a while. And, uh, but then eventually it became evident that there were lots of Christians who were involved mm. in liberty ideas. Uh, it's just a matter of explaining it and getting the word out there that these are consistent ideas together. Whether we're looking at folks like Ed Opitz, you know, the Reverend Ed Opitz and uh, uh, even our, our good friend Larry Reed and a variety of others who, you know, they may not have had, you know, a full explanation from a Christian point of view as to why they thought the things that they thought about the state, but it was always there in the background. And, you know, we're just revealing the things that have heretofore not been at that foreground. So that is a bit of a long-winded explanation, I guess, than perhaps what you were asking for, Doug. No, but no, I just well, decided I'd riff on it. So. No, that's good. And I'll confess that, I, you know, I went to seminary, oh gosh, 15 years ago. And I remember the one class that I did poorly in 
the one class that bored me to death was the church history class. <laughs> There's two reasons for that. At the time, I was courting this feisty young woman who would later become my wife. And then we got married while I was in seminary. So I had to prioritize which classes I was going to do better in. That's a terrible thing to say. Yeah. To admit publicly. <laughs> but hey, like for some reason, this was just not the class. Okay? If your professors are listening, I'm uh, sorry. Uh, if my professors are listening, I'm super thrilled. I don't care that they're hearing this. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, the other thing that it was is the, uh, the, the teacher that was supposed to teach the class, I don't remember the circumstances, but I remember we had a substitute teacher and it wasn't his forte. And so that semester was like at the last minute taken over by a guy who this wasn't his normal teaching class. And so it kind of just happened rather than like there was this person teaching us church history in a like compelling way. So maybe had I had a different professor, it might have been different. But in the meantime, I lament the fact not only that I got a poor grade in that class, but that I didn't care. I didn't care about church history, about what somebody in, say, the year 1400 says about the divinity of Christ, because I know the truth. Jesus was divine. Obviously, <laughs> it's the devil is in the details, so to speak, and there is a stream or a trajectory in which, you know, questions and answers to those questions and reactions to the answers to those questions sort of develop over time. That is why it's important for us to know this history. You know, it's one thing to say, well, yeah, like think of that the American context. It's one thing to say something along the lines of, well, free speech is important or, um, you know, whatever. But when you understand why it's in the Constitution, you actually have a greater understanding as to why it is important for today and it has been for so long. Um, so anyway, that's me riffing on your riff. We're a little far afield on the tangent, but I <laughs> am very much in favor of people who write off the idea of, studying church history to not do so. And I lament that I did for quite a while. Yeah, and, and I would just, you know, we're not going to talk about it tonight, but if you're interested in learning more about church history and you just want some suggestions, just email us. I will give you a, a reading list. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty sure we did an episode on it. We're getting to so many episodes where it's I hard don't to remember. remember if we discussed it. <laughs> I know that when Nick Gosling was uh, actively part of creating these podcast episodes, uh, we talked about it on that. Yep. And anyway, if I'll go back and look at them and see, and I'll put it, we'll put it in the show notes page. Awesome. Yeah, I think it's a great idea. So, Norm, is there anything else you want to say on this episode about Chapter One, the introduction, the cover, anything <laughs> interesting? <laughs> Actually, Do you, you want to tell what? the story of the cover here, real quick. Actually, you know what? Now that I was just sort of being tongue in cheek about it, yes, we should talk about yeah. the cover. <laughs> well, it, it's why it's is it not purple? Why is it not purple? <laughs> well, or, yeah, it's a good question. <laughs> good question, Doug. Let me tell you. So, this is actually kind of funny. We, you know, internally we had had some debate about what should the cover look like. And we, you know, we kind of went through some ideas and whatnot. And eventually, I remember very distinctly, I was like, you know what? I'm going to show off a bunch of covers to the team and let them know this is why I like this cover and here's why. And so I pulled up a bunch of different books, you know, showing off, a, like, look at how simple this cover is and what, and mm -hmm. the, the popping colors and the, you know, the way this looks is just awesome. And we had, at this point, we had had our title and we were happy with it. And I remember at one point, I was just like, you know what? Conscious Capitalism has a great look to it. It's a, it's a very interesting looking book. And it has it's super simple. It's got this lovely kind of, you know, bright yellow design or color front and whatnot. And a simple geometric design. You know what I want? You know what I really just want on this book? I want, a, I want an ichthus with a crown. <laughs> mm. 
And I remember I, I just sketched it on a little piece of paper with a title on it. And I took a picture of it and then I just sent it to you. And I was like, this is going to be the cover. And it had an ichthus and a little crown. And you were like, yep, that's it. And, and then we and we just <laughs> off to the races. That was fun. And then eventually, you know, you did do some some great things in, in the kind of formulation of the, the cover with the cross on the front and uh, the kind of the little bit of fade on the back that allowed you to see yet another little vision of the Ichthus with crown and all the all the little detail that went into that. And yeah, that was that was great. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. The cover was designed in in ultimately like when it came down to it, it's like you, you debate, you debate, you debate, and then you do it in five minutes. So <laughs> Yeah. That has happened in so many of the designs yep. that I've worked with. So there you go. Now you have the history now, of the of the cover. And <laughs> that's how it worked. We spent Two days on the, I mean, obviously it got minorly tweaked as we got, you know, the names and figured out the order of the names and endorsements and stuff. But outside of that, we, we spent probably two to three weeks on these previous cover thoughts. And then this was like a two-day process. We sent it to the other authors and they're like, love it. Let's go. Yep. <laughs> there it is. So, yeah, if you could just there skip to that. It's like, it's like the person who says, if I knew grandkids were this much fun, I would have had them first. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Who knew? Who knew? <laughs> so back to chapter one specifically, and I think it's probably worth one other note, I think, before we kind of conclude here. And that's that, uh, you know, I really had a vision of what I wanted to see in the layout of the theology from the outset. Because my my general mantra these days is, is that if I'm going to explain, you know, kind of the the way in which we should be thinking about the nature of power in the state and government and whatnot in the scriptures, then I'm going to do it from point A to point Z. I'm going to start in Genesis and I'm going to end in Revelation because I think that that's really the way you need to start. A lot of folks like to start with like Romans 13 or 1 Peter, and that's just it. That's, that's all that the Bible has to say. And that's just not it at all. And in fact, there are messages about power from beginning to end in the scripture, starting in Genesis, ending in Revelation, where we learn from Genesis that the state is founded in rebellion against God, that the nature of power is about lording it over other people. And that is, that's from the very beginning. That's the way it is. And the end point in Revelation is that the destiny of power and of the state is ultimately in destruction. God wins in the end. And how is this symbolized? Well, guess what? It's actually the same symbol from Genesis to Revelation. It's Babylon. That's what Babel is. In fact, Babel, you know, the Tower of Babel being the origin story of the state, is Babylon. That's just it. I mean, th there's no question about that. It is. And, uh, and so it's, it's really cool to realize that that message flows from the beginning of Scripture to the end. And uh, in, in between, you get a lot of other messages, too, that are important. From that which you see in 1 Samuel, and uh, when Jesus, I mean, sorry, <laughs> when Jesus, when Samuel is asked by the people of Israel to give them a king and he goes to God and, and, you know, God says, all right, well, we can do this, but you know, you need to go tell them, give them a, a bit of a talking to Samuel and here's what you're going to tell them. And Samuel of course tells them that, you know, if this king that you want is going to do all this terrible stuff to you, you really, really, that's what you want. Well, yeah, that's what we want. Okay. Well then of course it's a total disaster. And, you know, we keep having prophets arising to speak against, that which the kingdom is doing that is against God, trying to bring them back to the, to the fold, back into proper relationship with God. We get the message from, from the gospels themselves 
and Jesus rejecting the opportunity to take the kingdoms of the world by just bowing down and, and worshiping the Satan. And then, you know, we get, I mean, that's a major part of it. And then, of course, we see from the book of Acts the way in which the church has a peaceful resistance to the edicts of the state with regards to, in particular, their orders against preaching the gospel and so on. And that, of course, you know, we, of course, we know from history how that flows into the way in which Christians behave from then on out. But then also the epistles, of course, and then the way in which those are subversive to the narratives of their day from the cultures around them. And then, of course, again, back to Revelation and realizing that the first message of Revelation is a prophecy against Rome. And that's symbolized even through Babylon yet again. And then it has a both a, a present focus, that is Revelation and, and the fall of Rome, but then also a future focus and the ultimate victory of God over the powers. So that's a, you know, the powers that be are, are still out there is the message, of course, but God has overcome them all. And through the power of God, you also overcome them all as well. And it may not be now, but it surely will be in the end. And that's that's really it. And so <laughs> the basis of everything. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, no, it, it's really good. And I, I really am excited to hear people's feedback about this book. If you haven't bought a copy yet, please go out and get one for you and your friends. It's like 128 pages. It's not super long. Each question's a couple hundred words. The abortion questions are a little bit longer. They need a little bit more attention. So we, we kind of let our self-imposed word limit slide. <laughs> but anyway, we've, we've heard so much great feedback about this book and how succinct it is and how it just flows from one question to another. So that's our take on, that's the author's take, I should say, on chapter one and a little bit of miscellany on the beginnings of the book. And we will see you... Well, we'll see you next week for an episode, but in a few weeks after that, you'll also get us to talk about chapter two, and we will get into that, the basics of libertarianism. Thanks for joining us. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Thank you.